Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, we are just talking about Clubhouse, and you said because you have an Android, you are yet to go on. But you had an interesting concept that you actually learned through your little course that you did through the U of H, but if you would, and I'm sure all listeners out there by now have heard of Clubhouse, whether you're on it or not, it's irrelevant, but you had an interesting take on it. And I'd like you to describe or, you know, explain what you had explained to me because it was, it was a great way of putting it. So I guess if you're trying to stay engaged in the social media game, which I guess we all are for better or for worse, you learn that you can connect with people in a number of different ways. And professor for my digital marketing kind of workshop, he said, look, you know, you might think about something like Vine. So Vine was this social media platform where you had like six seconds to make a video and you figure out how to engage with people, you build an audience and then Twitter buys it and it shuts them down. Yeah. But guess what? You know, then Snapchat kind of comes into the fold. And so what you've learned from one platform carries over to another and now TikTok. And so even if it could be a complete waste of time. You know, one of these platforms you think is going to get shut down or bought or whatever. Yeah. There may still be opportunity where you could get familiar with it. You could build a network and that could carry over elsewhere. Yeah. No, and it, and it is. And you talk about networking. You know, I was in this little room the other day and met someone and we hit each other up and, you know, now we may be meeting for coffee, but he's in the oil field. And so again, it's an interesting way to network. And I mean, the fact of how much funding they've gotten, I think it reached just a billion dollar valuation. Japan just started using it. And from what I've read, and I don't know where it may have been a blog, so I can't, you know, reference the source to be completely accurate, but you know, the download rates are higher than you know, a lot of other apps that have been out there that have that have blown up. And again, it's still only for iPhone. And so that like weird like level of exclusivity and FOMO that everyone kind of admires, they they've got a really interesting yeah, exactly. Right. And so I know there's a lot of interesting sort of rooms that have started and a couple of buddies of mine that are, you know, in the oil field that we'd started some rooms and just some really, to be honest, some great conversations. And one that today that you and I talked about, that was your idea is it's a common, you know, a lot of those things we're going to chat about today are very common amongst conversations that we have every single day. And so, but with that said, Matt, you know, kind of We wanted to reflect on the outlook. Obviously, things have changed from this time last year with regards to the administration. You know, there's such a big push on going green. You know, a lot of companies are diversifying themselves, divesting and, you know, saying, oh, we're going to try and be carbon neutral and we're going to, you know, not produce as much oil and gas in the future. And so, you know, just to maybe shine some light. And and again, I am certainly not an economist. I am not a, you know, a brain when it comes to that. But, you know, I read and you know, with school and stuff like that, have a decent idea. And and I know you pay attention and have your finger on the pulse of what's going on. So maybe just shine some light and just have a good conversation around it. What do you think? I think so. I mean, uh, I hope people can kind of be encouraged. I mean, I think the oil and gas industry gets a bad rap because it's not well understood. There's definitely things we can do better and and we should be part of the conversation because, you know, I, I heard somebody say the other day, like, well, what if we just shut everything down to teach everybody a lesson, shut in all the gas pipelines just for one day? Yeah. See what happens. And, you know, the reason that you can't do that is because people would die. 
I mean, it's, it's as straightforward as that is energy is essential. And yeah, there's different ways to get it, but there's a lot of reasons why hydrocarbons have created so much, I don't know, improved quality of life, all the above. And so, you know, we don't want to overlook that in the midst of a lot of narratives that seem to be repeated without appropriate due diligence, you know, but yeah, things, things are going to change. They always do. But at the very least, let's have the right perspective because at some point facts matter. You know, they do. And I encourage a lot of folks too, is, is it's easy to get caught up in the headlines. And then what the internet does really well as is it feeds into whatever you click into, but, you know, looking at the data, I think is one thing that we really have to consider and, you know, what, what you're looking at, how, you know, and not to, you know, die on the sore when you're looking at certain things, but because there's a lot of information out there and, and a lot of it's built on trying to build a narrative, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, sites like the EIA. Now, while their forecasting is questionable just because there's so many uncertainties, obviously they didn't, you know, the EIA forecast never took into consideration, you know, the double black swan event that we've had. But 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 looking at the data and realizing that right now, you know, things are slowly coming around. The demand for energy, I guess globally is what I was trying to get at, is not like it didn't get cut in half. Like I think consumption right now for oil you know, going into Q1, I think we're around 90, between 95 and hundred million barrels a day, which is, we were a little over that before COVID. And so percent wise, there's a lot of energy being consumed. And so it has to come from somewhere. And the forecast for that, I mean, as, de- as countries develop China, India, I mean, the U S I mean, everywhere that's either developed or couldn't continue to develop is going to demand more energy. And so it's hard to think just looking at the fundamentals of, you know, industrialization that we won't need oil. And in more specifically, even, you know, within the power generation sector, natural gas. I mean, people are saying now it's trying to get away from coal, moving to natural gas. Well, guess what? You still have to drill for natural gas. (laughs) So it's interesting, Matt, what are your thoughts on, I guess, kind of talking about, you know, the push for going green and, and really, do you think it's really going to affect us? Are we all going to be out of jobs or like how, how fearful are you? And maybe kind of some optimism around that. Cause it's, it's easy to get caught up in, you know, what we see on the headlines every day. I mean, I guess it's sort of tricky, right? Like I think, you know, well-developed Western nations will continue to look at other forms of energy. You know, there's no problem with that. The problem is that you run up against basic issues with math. Most engineers will tell you that if you're refusing to consider nuclear, which you know places like California are shutting down their nuclear power, and they're not going to use natural gas, there's absolutely no way to put up that many solar powers and windmills and provide the electricity that they need. And you know, and not only that, but a lot of those states, as much as they claim they're you know well on their way, find themselves in a position where they can't produce enough electricity and have to buy it, you know, from adjacent states which also need electricity. And when they say, sorry, we don't have any to spare, you have brownouts, you have, you know, some of these other things. Right. And that's what we've seen last summer, right? When, when the whole, you know, California, <laughs> you know, had an electricity shamble and then, you know, why their electricity rates are so high. And, and again, I, utilities is a whole another realm that, that I'm slowly learning about, but it's very complex in electricity markets and, power prices and all that. But, but like you said, it's, and even talking to folks that are in renewables that are educated, that understand energy demand, it only gets scary when you're really dogmatic one way or the other. 
and really being dogmatic only exists in the presence of ignorance. And so it's having that open mind of, of under, uh, just really understanding and educating yourselves on the matter at hand. But again, it's easy to get caught up in, in these camps that are really steering one way versus the other. But Matt, let's talk a little bit more, I guess, a little more, I guess, related to us and on the drilling side of things. I'm sure everyone's seen out there the the lease moratorium by the Biden administration and, you know, these whole permitting issues. What, what, what do you see kind of that going and how that'll impact us and, and sort of your thoughts on that? Hey, Justin. Hey, Matt. What's so important that we need to break into a pristine flow line episode to tell our listeners? Well, we need to tell them what we're so excited about. Of course, the 101st episode spectacular. That's right, Matt. We're just a few episodes away from a big milestone, and we really want to celebrate because, you know, we love to celebrate. So how are we going to do it this time? Well, from now until episode 101, we want to hear from our listeners. We've got a great new website. If you go to the full line page, you can see not only all of our episodes, but you can enter for a giveaway. Ah, the old stress balls again, isn't it? No, Justin, we've actually got some pretty nice things. Think (laughs) about maybe a smoker where you can keep the rig crew happy, things like that. We'll select about three winners for the giveaway. That's actually a great prize. And I've heard a lot. I mean, you go to a rig and there's a lot of folks out there trying to cook. And I say trying. They are cooking because most of those rig hands and especially mud engineers know how to cook. So something like that would be phenomenal. So all you have to do is go to the AESfluids.com website and click on the flow line button. There you can see all of our great episodes along with our contact form. Click join the giveaway, provide a message telling us how great we are, and you're entered. As you know, Justin, I'm pretty big on free stuff, so I think there will be a few people who will be trying to enter this. Well, I know you like free stuff. Every time we try and go for lunch, you tag on with the salesman. So uh, if anyone's like Matt and likes free stuff, now's your chance to get some stuff. So we're excited to celebrate with all the listeners, and hopefully everyone listens to the 101st episode. We hope to see you there. And if you have, we'll see if you won. All right, back to the episode. You know, it was kind of interesting. I, I attended, it was a hydraulic fracturing symposium put on Vincent and Elkins, put on by Vincent and Elkins, which is a law firm in town. It was a virtual event, but a lot of my friends who have companies and investments use their legal services. And so somehow I ended up on their email list, but they have some great content. And, you know, so they talked about, you know, what would it be like, depending on who wins the election when this happened? And they pointed out just kind of the nature of a lot of these things where big changes are actually very, very difficult to do. And in a way, there's sort of a game to this as well, where let's say you're a politician who you know wants to say, we're going to have solar powered flying cars in five years. You could make a motion or impose a ruling and then basically make it in such a way that a federal judge shoots it down. And you can go back to your constituents and say, look, I did everything I could. And you can claim credit for being one of the good guys without actually having to implement something that really (laughs) probably isn't feasible. Right. And so, you know, there's campaign promises and there's things you can deliver on. And so like part of their, you know, position is, you know, look, you can issue an executive order, but then, you know, a proposed ruling comes out. There's a public comment period where everybody, you know, states, you know, their, their factors, there's an ultimate rule that's established, and then everybody sues. <laughs> and because these are federal decisions, you can kind of pick your court. So if I, you know, if if it affects the oil and gas industry, you sue in a energy friendly state, and you know that court may be a little that district court may be a little more conservative and 
you know, open-minded than, you know, the Ninth Circuit in California, for example. So you sue, you get a stay, or you get, you know, something like that. And then these things basically get tied up in appeals going back and forth for a long time. And, and they pointed out that there are actually Obama era rules that were never in place and are still tied up in court because the Trump administration was, would show up to the appeals and be like, we don't want to defend this. You know, this doesn't align with what we think is the right thing to do. But because it was the government who's standing, they got to like show up and stand there during this appeal that they have no interest in, you know, seeing through. So these things sit around for forever. And, and typically by the time, if they ever actually make it all the way through, it's been a long time and there's not much left of the extremity of the ruling. It's an interesting thing, but one of the other things they pointed out is, you know, during the Obama years, during the, you know, Macondo incident, the moratorium on drilling there, it was basically deemed completely arbitrary. Like a judge kind of, you know, ripped the ruling to shreds and said, you just did this to penalize the oil industry. This had nothing to do with safety, nothing to do with any real argument. And because of that, you know, there's no way we can, you know, of course, so much time had passed, it didn't matter. But what happens then is that, you know, I've learned that judges really don't like to overturn other judges. So you have all these things from the Obama moratorium where judges repeatedly rejected the Obama administration's arguments and set a ruling. And in their ruling, they have guidance on why they rejected it. And now another judge is going to go look at that, that case law and say, okay, based upon this decision, I am making my decision. And so it actually makes it much more difficult to do some of these things because it won't be the first time some of these arguments have been made in court. So all of that's entirely possible, you know, like just a president on their own, it's, it's probably going to be more difficult than it seems, but it doesn't mean people can't suffer in the interim as this stuff kind of works its way through. And it's a frustrating thing, but it's an important thing to keep in mind. The executive has a ton of power, way more than it should, in my opinion. And so a lot of things can happen that shouldn't. But there are a lot of, there are a lot of ways for people's voices to be heard after one person does something that they think maybe appeals to most of their constituents. So it could be a couple of years from now that we're drilling on federal lands quietly and the administration's throwing up its hands saying, well, we try, you know. We did everything we could, but those pesky courts. So, you know, that, that, that was just a really interesting perspective. Not to say that, you know, we've seen what's, ha- what's happened in Canada where the government just takes a, you know, a hard left and says, we'd rather import oil from Saudi Arabia than produce our own. And, you know, somehow that's going to be a victory for us. But the world still needs electricity. So, I mean, in your class, you've probably talked about just all of the energy, you know, expected energy demand and that sort of thing. So maybe you could comment on that. Yeah. And that's really when we took our energy economics class last fall or summer or fall, that was one of the things is, you know, economics really comes down to supply and demand. And so what it means and, and what I really learned is that the amount of energy, and I kind of touched on it earlier, but as countries and regions develop, in order to get to where they have running water, to get them to where we're at here in America requires a tremendous amount of energy. And the fact of the matter is that is, is the cost for, and I mean, when these countries are in that position 
to try and get to the next level, they need energy by any means necessary. So they're not necessarily interested in, you know, saving the planet. And they're, they're, they're interested on trying to put food on the table and have lights on at nighttime and heaters or fans to cool their houses down. And so without like some serious government assistance, they need reliable and affordable energy and sun, you know, where that comes from typically is coal. I mean, that's where it all started. And the energy conversion for coal is a lot more efficient than almost anything else. And so, I mean, coal has been around forever. You look at trains and I mean, that's really how the whole energy revolution, in my opinion, kind of, you know, that's a lot of where it started, but, you know, I think we get kind of, we're in a bubble in North America and a lot of these first world countries, because a lot of the world isn't quite there. And so once these countries get a taste of what it's like to live and have these luxuries that we do have, the amount of energy required is going to exponentially increase, but it costs money. And a lot of these places are corrupt and a lot of, you know, these countries get suppressed. And so they're not necessarily going to want to invest a ton and give subsidies to things like solar and wind and everything else. Now, you may have organizations globally that help these countries and stuff. But again, I just, I look at like, we're not a world that's using less and less energy. And the, the, the really interesting part to me is, you know, when we're talking about the U.S., you know, talking about like emissions, right? Emissions is such a big topic, but a lot of these companies that are green make money off credits. And so at the end of the day, it's about money and power. And if you look at the U.S. and you look at, you know, sites like our world and stats or the IEA, they've got a lot of good data that shows in a lot of these developing countries, the energy, you know, intensity kind of actually goes down, even though the population increases because of things like efficiencies. And that's one thing too, that I find when, you know, when talking about abatement and CO2 emissions, it's like, there's ways of being more efficient. So you can still have reliable and affordable energy. And if you become more efficient with how you produce it, you can actually limit your emissions. I mean, you look at some of our customers, they have battery technology on the rig, the amount of diesel they're saving just by, you know, by having some technology on at the rig site is making a huge impact on how much tons of CO2 they produce every year on a rig. And so again, I'm kind of babbling on, but something I shared with you, and, and if anyone out there is interested, it's called the environmental Kuznick curve to where as countries or nations develop, the amount of energy they use goes up, but they get to a point where they realize, okay, we need to start being stewards of the environment and the actual CO2 emissions go down through technology, through the adoption of efficiencies. And so if you look at these sites, like I was talking about, a good one that I always reference for school is the IEA. And you can look at the, you know, energy, you can filter it through say like energy consumed in the world, or you can filter it by country and it has these nice, pretty graphs. And if you look at the U S our CO2 emissions have actually gone down over the last decade or so. So we're actually heading in the right direction. And so it's like, why are we being attacked here in the U S? But then if you look at countries like, you know, the non OECD countries, they're the ones that are going to be, if everyone's concerned about, you know, global warming and, greenhouse gas emissions, like we need to be focusing on these countries and, and really kind of leave us alone because I think we're on, we're on the right direction, you know? And so it's, I don't know, it's a very, it's a very complex problem. And the more I learn about it, the more I realize that I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> but again, to wrap that all up is I would summarize it by saying, you know, energy demand is going up and it has to come from somewheres. 
And while solar and wind are great, they're variable. And so how are we going to fill the gap? Are we going to fill the gap with, you know, something that we can produce locally here in the U S that helps with our GDP that helps with our energy security. Cause, cause keep in mind when you're not using your own energy that you produce locally, you have to depend on other people. And typically the people that you're depending on want to have that control. And the more depend independent we can have, the more energy security we have and energy security is a, a pretty important thing. And so, you know, stuff like cutting down the, or stopping the Keystone pipeline, anything we do like that is going to increase our dependency on foreign oil. And that can be scary. And we, I don't think anyone wants to go back to being a net importer of oil because right now we're a net exporter and it's getting close again. But these are just things that if people aren't familiar with that, I would encourage them to educate themselves on to where then at least you can, when you're reading headlines or talking to other people, to have somewhat of an educated conversation versus just what we see on the headlines. Cause those headlines can be very misconceiving and, and they try and, you know, they're building a narrative because at the end of the day, like I said, a lot of it is about power and money. So anyway, that's my rant. I mean, I, I think it, it all comes down to if nobody's ready to answer the question, where is this energy going to come from? Then I think it's very obvious that hydrocarbons have to be part of the conversation. Even when you talk about reducing emissions of all kinds, and I think, you know, it, it's just what frustrates me is that people take for granted everything that energy does in their lives and they think that it's easy to acquire. And, you know, the oil field, you know, I've, I've read when you read like the prize or books like that, it basically says, you know, since the Rockefellers, when you had this monopoly controlling everything Nobody has trusted, you know, oil companies, (laughs) right? Like the public trust has never been there since then. And I was like, well, that's probably true, but it's interesting when you're in an oil town or you educate somebody on, you know, everything it takes to drill a well, they're like, I had no idea. This is fascinating. And so I guess you can read all these things in the headlines, but we don't have all the answers. And well, I think everybody keeps getting optimistic about big breakthroughs in technology Yes, we hope they, you know, we hope we continue to advance, but odds are there's not going to be that many that fall in place at the same time. And like you said, do we find ourselves in a position where we're sitting on a bunch of resources we could use ourselves while people are suffering? Or, you know, do we, you know, keep people employed and allow them to, you know, provide essential energy for, you know, and I'll say that this is another opinion that it frustrates me to see these goals. Oh, in 2050, we're going to do this. That is probably the safest commitment you can make because (laughs) let me think in 2050, I will be retired, hopefully still alive and hopefully retired, you know? So think about a 60 year old or a 70 year old politician committing to this. There's no skin in the game for them. No. And that's, that's the one thing that I laugh about the Paris accord. And, and again, while the intent is good, Unless there's consequences to not following through with your promises, who really cares? Yeah, I mean, it's an unenforceable, it's an accord. There's no enforcement mechanisms. There's really no verification. You know, you self-report. Yeah. And again, the intent is good. Like, hey, let's all band together and, you know, let's come together and we'll be countries that are focused on, you know, climate control. And we're going to put these targets in place. And, you know, it's funny, I, I had to write a little mini paper on 
I forget what it was, but I was doing some research and, and out of every country that is on the agreement, there's only two that are actually on target. And they're like countries that have like less people than the city of Houston. Like, so a lot of these folks are not even on target to meet these goals. People love the sense of achievement in committing to these things. They seldom are actually able to figure out how to follow through. You know, you remember Kyoto was the first one, right? Yeah. Nobody, nobody ever came close. And I'm all for goal setting, be your best self, all those kinds of things. But if you're not going to be honest about how you're going to get there while still taking care of your, your, you know, your people, it's not right. But, you know, the short of it is the math doesn't work. And so what does that mean for oil and gas? It may actually help oil prices stay up. <laughs> right. You know, there may not be as many places we can drill, but maybe, maybe that tier two acreage that people weren't drilling because they needed $75 oil or $70 oil. Well, if you limit where you can drill, that stuff may become more attractive. Yeah. It could be good for Texas, bad for New Mexico, just because of who owns the land. So we'll see, but it can be really stressful to just continually hear bad news, to continually get beat up by feeling like something you're doing in your job is bad. But I just want to encourage the listeners out there, you know, there's actually, you know, beyond just the notion of of providing energy to people that need it, there is the opportunity for us to step up and look around and see if there's more we can do to just do this in a better way, you know, and most of that comes with efficiency. So when we can drill wells more effectively, we pollute less, we use less chemicals, less emissions, whether, well, the, you know, generators are running all those good things. And so we're going to keep doing that. That's, you know, AES does that. I think every, every good service company, every operator is always looking to take the next step. So of course. No, that's, that's a great point. And, and again, I think looking towards, you know, as we move into Q2 and the rest of 2021, there's certainly optimism to be had. Activities picking up and anyone who's on LinkedIn, at least what I've seen over the last month or so is, is a lot of these companies are starting to post on LinkedIn, hey, we're hiring. And, you know, just knowing people that have gotten, you know, back into the oil field, you know, is great. And while I would say in the long run, our, the headcount in oil and gas here in the lower 48 likely will will slowly over time be reduced just through efficiencies and it's just the nature of it. Maybe not, but but again, just a hunch, but there's still so much opportunity and there's so many other parts of our industry that are evolving on the technology side. You know, you hear these tech startups and and so again, like just because you're not on a rig doesn't mean you're not going to have, you know, a job in oil and gas. Like there's so much out there. And so and I think Matt, you and I had talked about this, but use this time to, to further educate yourself. There's so many online resources to get either certified or, you know, to learn about whatever it is that you may be interested in. But at the end of the day, I think 2021s looks good. Oil prices are going up. Supply is going to be down, which is going to even put upward pressure on more, you know, on prices. And I'm speaking supply from, from the U S here, but that said, rate counts going up, you know, frac spreads are slowly increasing. And so I think we're going to see a pretty good 2021, Matt, and I'm, I'm hope I'm right, but you know, we'll see and we'll have to hope for the best, but what else do you think? I think I've kind of hit my ceiling as far as, you know, just a couple of dudes opinions based upon how much they read Twitter and check the internet. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's just, it's one of those, I thought it might be a good conversation. Just, yeah, there's, no, a, there's a lot of reasons to stress out when you read these headlines and yeah, there's reason for concern, but it, it goes back to we need to educate people and we need to understand that it's not as easy as it sounds. 
Right. And one thing I'll just offer up there is if there's anyone out there that, you know, is, is maybe unsure where to look for good information, let me know. I have a lot of great resources that I trust. And so if you want to learn about a topic within energy, again, I'd be happy to help point in the right direction. And if I don't know it, I have a lot of resources that can also help point people in the right direction. Because right now, I think we need to educate ourselves more than anything, which then educate others who may may or may not be informed on what's going on and you know, really <laughs> why oil and gas is such a necessity. But with that said, Matt, don't want to keep babbling. I think this is a great conversation. And if anyone wants to hit us up, hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at AESFlues.com or on LinkedIn. Well, Matt and I are always engaging on there. And please like and review if you could. Matt, close us out, buddy. Everybody, hang in there. We're surviving this. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, take care, everybody. Be safe. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.